please, if you're watching from uh, using a device, a tablet or a phone in particular, sign in, please, and let us know where you are watching us. We love that. It, it's, it's a huge encouragement to go through those. Now, if you're watching on a smart TV or the like, you may not be able to sign in, and we get that. But just make a note in the comments, if you could, or you can uh, send us an email at info at rsafeharbor.com to let us know you're there. We're in the story series, and this one is a bit of a break, because I'm not going to tell you a story. What I'm going to do is tell you why I believe a story. You'll understand in a bit. I've come into contact with a lot of folk that are atheist, agnostic, or deist. If you don't know the difference, atheists say there is no God. There is zero thing out there we could call a God. An agnostic says, we don't know. There's not enough evidence to say that there is. There's not enough evidence to say that there's not. Generally speaking, they live their lives as if there were no God because they say there's just not enough evidence. A deist says there is a God, probably. But that is a primal force. It's not a personal God. Instead, it is an ultimate beginning of the universe. There is this thing greater than matter, but it doesn't care about us. It's not made any interplay or connection with us. Um, some people have referred to it as a, as a God that sets the universe into motion like winding a clock. And that reference is about 40 years out of date. So for those of you that don't know, you used to actually have to wind a clock with a key and let it run on its own. And they say that's what this primal force did. And by the way, just to make sure you understand, people like Einstein, um, Albert Einstein, whenever they mention God, they are generally speaking in a deistic uh, sense. So whenever Einstein would say, or Niels Bohr's or any of them, something akin to uh, that God does not play dice with the universe. In other words, the universe runs by certain rules. They are not referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are referring to whatever force lies behind the creation of a universe. Whether that's a personal force or not, they tend to say not. They, it's more of a, of a set of laws of physics, some of which we have not discovered. So if that's not confusing enough, these people often will look at Christians and they, they, have a, they have some gotcha arguments. And we, can, we understand some of them. We know they're coming, like uh, the question of pain, uh, evil, why is, why is there evil in the world? But there are other arguments that they use. And one of the gotchas that Christians are not prepared for is that they will say, well, you're an atheist too. And we look at them and go, well, absolutely not. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And uh, they'll come at that as well. But they'll say, well, see, do you believe in Thor? Do you believe in Zeus? Aphrodite? Diana? Apollos? Do you believe in, and, and of course we're going, well, no, no. Well, do you believe in Vishnu? Do you believe in the Hindu gods? Well, no, no. Well, see, you're an atheist, and they'll say, I'm an atheist, and you're an atheist. The only difference between us is that you believe in one more God than I do. And Christians get stumped, stumped on that, and they don't know what to say. So I want to help you a little bit with that today. There are many ancient stories about gods, from the Gilgamesh saga 
all the way up into the present time. And these ancient stories, which are then repeated and changed into myths to this very day, we dismiss. We say, well, there's no evidence, for example, that there was a Zeus. We see no evidence that he exists or that he has interacted with anything on the planet. And because we don't see any evidence there, we dismiss it. But when I say I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm making a declarative statement. Not an argument, but just a declarative statement. And that statement then requires evidence. And for some people, they will have questions about this. They'll say, no, it's just by faith. The Bible actually defines faith in a different way than most people do today. To most people today, uh, faith could have two words to it, blind faith or only faith. And the Bible never requires that. It never requires you to believe something that there's no evidence for. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, especially in the older wording of translations, it says faith is the substance. There's a substance there of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're going to talk about evidence of things not seen as we wrap up this lesson today. So wait to see one of those examples. But before that, let's just talk. When I say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, quoting the Apostles' Creed, or very, very similar, the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, only son of God. Is that reasonable? You know, Jesus's last name was not Christ. He didn't have a last name. When we say Jesus, we are using the most commonly used name in the first century. But then we're adding to it Christ, which is a Greek word, which replaces the Hebrew word of Messiah. The word Messiah means the anointed one. We are making claims about the personhood of Jesus and about a reality of a God in the universe. We're making big claims, and big claims need big evidence or big reason to back them up. We believe that Jesus is the culmination of the universe. He is God. He is the one who came down. Heaven came down, and glory filled my soul, as the song says, and we referred to um, two weeks ago now. This Messiah, we believe, is the one who was promised all the way back in the earliest stories in Scripture when Adam and Eve fell. Whenever they ate the fruit, they were kicked out of the garden. There was a prophecy, the first prophecy made in Scripture, that one would come that would be of the seed of woman and that would strike the serpent a death blow to the head, even though it injures him in the process. He would bruise his heel, which sounds like a minor injury unless you've ever had a bruised heel. And it is not. There, there will be consequences for the one who strikes the blow against the devil. So the question comes, is this reasonable? Well, let's start with a very common, commonly heard objection to our faith in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but when you say that, many people will, will, will just say to you, well, there's no evidence that Jesus even ever lived. Now, I need you to understand something, so I, I need to take a little time for you to make sure you get your non-internet and Twitter eyes off. 
and, and look at reality for a moment. To say something such as Jesus Christ, there's no evidence that Jesus Christ ever lived, is not an argument. Neither is it a statement of fact. It is a mere assertion. Now you can make statements of fact, but they are not arguments unless you've already had the argument. For example, I can say water is wet. Well, that's a statement of fact, but it's also just an assertion. If you look at me and say, in, in what way could that possibly be wet? Then I need to talk to you about the molecular makeup of water. I need to talk to you about surface tension, about definitions that are commonly understood to mean wet. And we go from there and I can make the argument. And at the end of the argument, I can then say water is wet. And that means it is a, it is a finding. After all of the arguments are done, we have found, we have found a fact. Well, when somebody goes, there's no evidence that Jesus Christ ever lived. And a lot of people say that. And some of them even have degrees. And they, they get to go on television a lot. You have to wonder, well, was, was there an argument that led up to this? Did they show fact? Did they lay out evidence or a lack of evidence so that we, they'd be able to say this? Well, they're able to say it because you can assert anything. As we've seen. We will have people that will say God created man and woman. And that's an assertion. And we will use biology to back that up. But others would say, you know, there are 50, 60, 100, whatever, different beings that are somewhere between man, woman, or a combination of the two. Those are, those are assertions that very often they are not interested in showing you the evidence. So there, it's not an argument. It is a mere assertion. If it were true that there were no evidence that Jesus ever lived, that would be very big news. And while I hear it frequently, and many people say it, the problem is nobody's making that argument. Nobody's ever made it well. Let me put it to you this way. And in fact, the last time I heard somebody try to build an argument for it, they were shot down and dismantled item by item, sentence by sentence, by an agnostic, not by a Christian. The debate with Bart Ehrman, who is agnostic, we'll talk about him again, just tore it apart. And in fact, he was um, motivated by that to write a book about, yes, he did live, even though Bart does not accept him as Christ. Assertions are easy to make. Arguments are harder. Don't let people get away with the easy. When they make an assertion, say, and what is your evidence? How did you come to that conclusion? It's very much like our Monday morning messages. Who told you that? And who told you that? And by the way, do not expect people that when you show them that the foundation of their argument is wrong or their assertion is wrong, that they are they're based upon false assumptions, do not expect them to hug you and thank you. Most often they just ghost me when we get to that point. They just cut off all contact. Other times they'll just write something hateful and quit. Sometimes they'll return as if we've done none of the work at all and just make an assertion. Did Jesus live? Well, we should and we must demand data 
not only from those that say he did not live, but from those who say he did live. One of our, our members asked me oh, a couple years ago now if I did research in neuroscience. And the, question, and the answer is no, no, I don't. At this stage in my life, what I do is I read. I read data. I read studies. I love that kind of thing. I read them. I absorb them. I see what the holes in them are. I talk to people about, all right, here's how we can combine these studies, or here's what somebody has missed. And that's, that's what people pay me for, is that I, I can do that, and then I can say, all right, here is a conclusion we can come to. And whenever somebody tells me that my Lord did not walk on earth, that he did not exist, that he did not say certain things. I'm going to look for data, but I'm also going to look for the absence of data. It's amazing to me that people who deny that Jesus ever existed believe all kinds of other things without ever checking data. For example, Dr. Robert Price is one who says Jesus never existed, but Dr. Robert Price also lectures, writes, and about his firm belief that there are aliens. There's no data, but that's what he does. Other people believe their phones are giving them cancer when there's zero evidence of this. They believe that GMOs are killing them or making them sick when, no, they're really just feeding the planet. A third of the world, we're told, lives in horrific poverty. And that used to be true, but it has not been true for decades now as nations have been lifting out of that at a rapid pace. Just look at the UN uh, and their statistical analysis, or if you want a book treatment of it, Hans Rolling, R-O-L-L-I-N-G. He passed away just recently, a Swedish atheist socialist who works for the United worked for the United Nations collecting all of this wrote a book with a made-up name factfulness look it up people will say you know 80% of the world don't have high wanting water or don't have it's untrue it's untrue by every single metric nations are getting better when it comes to health care access uh, to education for women, for example, and on and on. People repeat myths, and they believe all kinds of myths. And then they tell us that there was no Jesus. Well, I think your standard of evidence needs to be lifted. I'm not afraid of truth. If I find truth and I see that some of the ancient stories we've been told and believed uh, didn't really happen that way, they are metaphors or they are, they are mythic tales to help us understand a point about ourselves or God. I, I, when, if the truth shows me that, that's what I do. And in fact, I get in trouble for that. But whenever I look at truth, I know God is the author of all truth. He's big enough to handle the examination. As Jesus himself said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And as we said, even noted agnostics like Bart Ehrman will say, well, he wasn't the son of God, but he certainly existed and he did a whole lot of things. And he was expected by some people and not by others. And he's, uh, I love reading Bart Ehrman's books, but I will warn you that he always oversells and underdelivers. It'll say the lost, you know, the lost scriptures and you go in and it's, it's a phrase here and a phrase there. And you're going, really? That's it? That's, that, that's what you got? But he's fun to read. 
So I, I think I've read everything he's ever written um, just because I'm, I want to see. I'm not afraid to see what the other side says. So let's start with the Gospels. Oh, they immediately people throw flags on the field. You can't appeal to the Gospels. They were written so long after the events that took place that you, you just can't do that. Hold on. Hold on. I know Richard Dawkins makes that uh, assertion, and I have an entire hour presentation about that one thing he said and how that's an assertion with no evidence or argument. So I'm not going to do that right now because a lot of you would like to have lunch and, and, and lives, but maybe we can revisit that if you would like for me to later. The Gospels were written within living memory of those who saw the events. How do we know that? Because of the things that are not put in there. The things that are not explained. Because everybody understood what it was. For example, the sermon of Jesus to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Where he opened up the scriptures and revealed everything they had to say about him. And we don't know what that sermon was. Because it was so well known, they didn't write it down. In fact, that's what convinced Anthony Flew, who used to be the world's preeminent atheist debater, defender. He was he just was right up there. He, he debated any Christian anywhere, uh, really high up in academia and Oxford. And in his later years became a Christian because he saw the Gospels as ancient books written very close to the moments these things happened. And he also saw some absence. He didn't find other books written saying, no, it didn't. No, this wasn't the way it worked. That's not true. Now, some will object and they'll say, yes, but the church power got together and they collected. and They said, this is our story. There was no gathering power that could pull that one off for the first 300 years of the church at all. And even after that, it would not have been highly effective because people could write and do whatever they wanted to write and do. And we find some of those other gospels later on. But we always find that they were written so far after, you know, 300, 400, 500 years after, that nobody accepts them as being reliable. The events happened and people wrote them. It is, um, it's also... By the way, we accept other books. Our oldest copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars, for example, is about a thousand years after Caesar died. And yet people don't look at that and go, it's too far, it's too far, shove it away. And the same with our um, uh, Iliad, the Odyssey, you know, both written supposedly by Homer. Uh, we don't really know that. That's just traditionally said. The writings of Socrates, the teachings of Plato, all of these things, those books show up around 13, 1400 years after the events. And I have never heard in my life somebody goes, well, I'm not even sure if Socrates existed. There is a blatant bias against Jesus. So that when you bring out contemporaneous literature, such as the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, John was a little later, that people say, well, no, no, you can't, you can't read those. Yes, you can. They're evidence. They existed. They existed in a time and place close to the events and they were able to be refuted if there was anything to refute. And yet no one tried. 
the letters of Paul have to be entered into evidence as well. Some want to ignore him because he is pro-Jesus, but frankly, that is just silly. Why dismiss expert witnesses just because you don't like what they are experts in? We, we have trials where we bring in expert witnesses. And they will testify to the validity of ballistic evidence, for example. Does anybody in a jury, is it reasonable for somebody in a jury to go, well, he's only saying that because he believes in ballistic evidence and that there's a science called ballistics. Well, yeah, of course that's why he or she is saying these things because they're an expert in that thing. So if Paul's an expert in the early church and what was happening there, we listen to him. Whether or not you accept what he said, whether or not you decide that that is also coming from God or somehow inspired, that's another discussion. But you can't dismiss an ancient book just because you don't like who the writer liked. But those aren't the only ones we have. Jesus is also mentioned by a writer known as Josephus. Josephus was a soldier and a politician, lived from about 37 to 100 A.D., uh, Josephus' father was a soldier and a politician as well. Uh, who? Um, he, no, hang on. Josephus' father was a priest. I'm getting, getting them confused. He was a priest. And therefore, Josephus' father would have heard the apostles preaching and perhaps even Jesus preaching. Josephus, Josephus um, certainly witnessed many of the events that Luke describes in Acts because he also writes about them in his very ancient book, massive book, which you can get free online. Uh, it's been out of copyright for about 2,000 years, but um, it is very wordy. Uh, it is not a speedy read, but you can get, there are several books, but Antiquities of the Jews is what you'd be looking for. He wrote that actually to explain Jews to the Romans. Josephus used to be a general of the Jews who would fight the Romans. But when he saw that fighting the Romans would lead absolutely to the complete destruction of the Jews, he switched sides. Some people call him a traitor for that. He said he switched sides to save his people. He went to the Romans and he began to advise them. And he wrote these books to say, these are ancient people. They're doing these things for a reason. He's a complicated guy. Josephus, as he writes, refers in, in 20.200 of antiquities. He describes the death of James, the brother of Jesus. And he tells it exactly the way Luke did. Even though Luke and Josephus, as far as we know, would have never met. He calls Jesus, who is called Christ, quote, or the Messiah, the promised, the anointed one. He writes of how James was killed at the instigation of the high priest and names the high priest just as the scripture does. But there were also the others. Josephus was never a Christian. Tacitus was a Roman historian for the Roman Empire, lived about 50 to 120 AD. Uh, his book, The Annals, covers the emperors from Augustus to Nero. He's the one who tells us that Nero blamed the fire that swept through Rome on the Christians. And quote from Tacitus' um, book, Annals, therefore to squelch the rumor, Nero, the rumor that Nero himself started it, 
Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures. Those whom the common people call Christians hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Tacitus is well respected by modern historians. He is read by modern historians. It is a textbook for modern historians. And here he backs up Jesus, what he was called, when he lived, and even the governor that took his life. And these are books, no one questions these things. By the way, if you're wondering, why did he say that Christians were hated for their abominable crimes? What were they doing? They were called atheists because they did not believe that the emperor was God or that any of the Roman gods were real. And to the Romans, that was treason. That made you a seditious person who was very dangerous because you would upset the order of the empire and the order of the empire meant more to the Romans than anything else. In fact, if you don't know much about this, go listen to, and I know it's long, Last year's midweek Bible studies, as we went through the book of Revelation, I repeatedly bring up the fact that order was so important to the Romans that torturing and killing innocent people was not an issue as long as it kept order. And we go through many examples of that during that discussion. That's all up there. It's all free. There are no paywalls because good people are giving to this ministry so that we can continue to do this freely. And we thank God for every one of those people. They were also criminals because they did not partake in the parties of the empire. They did not do the oaths of the empire. And if you don't know, if you're still having a hard time grasping this, imagine what would happen if a Hollywood star were to stand up and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that there are man and woman that God made. I believe that God is a creator. I believe that there is sin and that sin is wrong. And the morality of Jesus is the way we are to live our lives. What would happen to that person? You already know. What would happen if a person on a sitcom said they've never had sex? You know how the laugh track would roar. Or if they said they'd only had sex with one person and that was their wife through their life. You know that people go, what? That's insane. That's crazy. Now, amp that up if it's a government policy. And maybe it will be again one day. And we will be accused of many crimes because we merely speak of Christ and faith. That's why the Christians had to be destroyed. They were bothering the order of the, of, of, of the group. And one week, very famously, about two years ago, I was uh, disinvited from two different things in, in the same week. One, a church thing, because they said that I was too liberal and progressive, and I, I, you know, they, just, they couldn't, uh, that would disrupt the order of the event. Same week, I was disinvited from a Northeastern University, State University, that was doing a diversity in faith and how to handle diversity of faith on a campus. And they decided they didn't want me because I was diverse from them. This is going to happen 
Well, that's why Tacitus says they are criminals. But he, again, is respected by modern historians. He validates who's in charge during the crucifixion. He validates um, the growth of the followers after the crucifixion and that they were challenging the might of Rome by their lives. Not by swords, not by marches, but by their very faith and lives. Bart Ehrman, again, agnostic, looks at all of this and says, quote, you can't explain the crucified Messiah as something that was made up. If it is hard to imagine Jews inventing the idea of a crucified Messiah, where did the idea come from? It came from historical realities. There really was a man, Jesus. No Jew would have invented him. End of quote. And we haven't even looked at the other writings from the first years of the faith that we still have to this day. And then that speak of the existence and the life and the teaching of Jesus in exactly the same terms as the Gospels. Books by Clement, Ignatius, and many more. And every single person who mentions Jesus in the first couple of centuries was fully convinced that he existed. Every single document. We have no writings from skeptics or from those who read the Gospels and said it didn't happen that way. Later, hundreds of years later, some would write those. But nobody in the centuries around the events questioned the events. And as we wrap this up, that we know the name of a first century Jew of no political standing in a backwater of the Roman Empire is staggering by itself. But, but we know more. We have prophecies from books we know were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And those prophecies were fulfilled by the life of Jesus. See, this is data. Knowing that people didn't question and that he did exist, that's huge. That's a lot of data. But it it's almost insignificant compared to the data that was already waiting for him when he arrived. The prophecies about Jesus. There are those that say that there are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And I want to tell you that I think they really have to stretch credulity. They're straining credulity here. They're pushing that way too far. But there are at least 35 to 50 solid uh, prophecies about Christ, he's teaching his life, what will happen to him, how he dies. And we'll mention some of those. He was to be born in Bethlehem. Again, a nowhere town. A town of maybe 200 people. He would be from the tribe of Judah. He would present himself, Zechariah 9, 9. And we'll have notes up uh, online that you can, we do that free as well. Because people give, we're able to do this. Um, he would enter Jerusalem writing on, uh, a, we now say donkey, uh, that had never been written on before. Psalm 22, the whole thing, is about the death of the coming Messiah and how he would be tortured to death. Daniel chapter 9, that he would arrive before the destruction of the second temple. And he did. He arrived, taught, died, and, and ascended about 30 years before the second temple was destroyed. The Messiah's life would meet a particular dis, um, description. This is Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Brilliant. If you just want to read those two, this will give you a lot of help. Isaiah was written about 500 years before Jesus. So it's really impressive. 
but he describes the suffering, the silence of his arrest and trial, his death and burial in a rich tomb, his resurrection, why he went through all of that. All of that is described 500 years before it happened. Oh, you want more data? We can do more data without taking the time to do all the citations because this is a limited forum. And I can't just keep holding up fingers because it, you run out of fingers really fast. Here are some other prophecies. He would be born of the seed of woman, born of a virgin, called the son of God or God with us. He'd be the seed of Abraham, son of Isaac, son of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, house of David. It really narrows the genealogical possibilities. Born in Bethlehem, we did that. Given gifts at birth from men from distant lands. Herod, a king, will kill the children. There'll be much weeping there. He will be called Lord. He will be a prophet, a priest, a judge, a king. He will be anointed by the Holy Spirit, preceded by a prophet. He would begin his ministry in Galilee. He would perform miracles. He would teach in parables. And again, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, rejected by the Jews, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Yes, even the number. The money would used to betray him would be thrown into the temple and used to buy a graveyard. He would be accused by false witnesses. He would refuse to answer his witnesses. He would be wounded and bruised, spat on, mocked, hands and feet pierced, crucified with thieves, made intercession for his persecutors, prayed for them, loved on them, hated without a cause. Friends would stand afar off. People would shake their heads. His clothes would be taken and gambled over. What a precise prophecy. He would suffer thirst. He would be offered gall and vinegar for that thirst. He would cry, Eli, Eli. His bones would not be broken, but his heart would be. His side would be pierced. Darkness would fall over the land and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's not all of them. Peter Stoner, a mathematician, worked for years with historians and archaeologists to refine a formula. He determined that anyone fulfilling these prophecies by chance would be beating odds that were 10 to the 157th power. 10 to the 157th power. That's a one with 157 zeros after it. One out of that. Just to help you, it is assumed at the moment that we, the universe has 10 to the 62 power, 62nd power uh, atoms. So this is exponentially more difficult. And he tried to put it into more layman terms, but unless you really understand and can visualize, it's pretty hard. He said that if you were to cover the state of Texas to the state of uh, to the uh, depth of three feet with silver dollars, and you marked one, and you turned a blind man loose, if he randomly at some point walking around through those bent down and picked up exactly the right one on the first try, that's ten to the one hundred and fifty seventh power. So I brought up another bit of evidence that I said we'd come back to. You will hear them say, well, there was also Mithras and there are these other gods. Yeah. Where are they? Where are their churches? 
How have they changed the world? Wherever Jesus goes, women are freed, slaves are freed, people are freed, love is taught. Is it always done right? No, we remember the Crusades. We remember the Inquisition. A lot of times in Jesus' name, people did horrific things. But eventually the love gets through. Things get better. Other gods, other religions cannot say that. So I'll close with this. I've traveled a lot on the sea. I love the sea. And while they're not technically the sea, I've been on the Great Lakes. I think I've been on all of them uh, one time or another. And the Great Lakes are amazing places. And let's say you go to Superior or Michigan um, and you, you get out on a lake and you're in a fishing boat, just basically a rowboat. Uh, if you're the right time of year, you're going to be all right. And you look around suddenly and you realize you cannot see any ship. You cannot see land at all because they are that big. When suddenly a wave comes, let's just put a number to it. Let's say a six foot wave is rolling towards you and you brace yourself and you brace your gear and you roll up and you roll over it. And you're going, where did that come from? That's a brilliant question. That's a great question. And you should, you should enjoy figuring that one out. Could it have come from an underground earthquake? I would tell you that that's a pretty good guess. Could it have come from a passing ship that you could not see? It was so far out there. It didn't have to be a big ship moving, but could happen. How about a sudden storm or squall that you cannot see? That can happen too. But you've got to explain the wave. You can't say, you know something? I bet a particularly aggressive trout swam past me. That's not a sufficient first cause. That's a scientific term. A sufficient first cause. I'm not a sufficient first cause for my house. I don't know how to build houses. So I cannot say I'm the one who caused this house. I'm not sufficient for that cause. A passing fish is not sufficient for the wave. When Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected and ascended, he created something that the wave is still rolling and it is still changing people. People who are drug addicts are sober now. People that beat their kids are now repentant and kind. People are still changing. How do you, how do you explain that? You need a sufficient first cause. So we say, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And that's not an assertion. That's a finding of fact. The data says so.